Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl, where we invite you to discover the inner wisdom of your inner girl or guy, as it would be, uh, that lies within. And today I'm going to be speaking to a very special guy, man, uh, named Rob Oaken. He is the editor and publisher of Voice Mail, M-A-L-E magazine, and a former executive director of the Men's Resource Center for Change, one of the earliest men's centers in all of North America. His book, Voice Mail, The Untold Story of the Pro-Feminist Men's Movement, which I have right here and I highly recommend. It is a collection uh, recently updated of uh, essays from various authors and folks. Chronicles the transformation of men and masculinity through the pages of the magazine, which is the Voice Mail magazine, which I also highly recommend. You can get your subscription. Tons of amazing resources in there for pro-feminist men. We'll get into what that means during our conversation. Uh, and let's see, Chronicles the Transformation of Men and Masculinity through the pages of the magazine, bringing readers inside one of the most important social justice movements most people have never heard of, the anti-sexist men's movement. Hello, this is sort of like the remedy for all of what Me Too has been talking about. So um, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today on Wise Girl. So grateful that you could join us. Glad to be here. Thank you. Um, and thank you for your decades of investment into this work. It seems as though, uh, as frustrating as it may be, that we're still having the conversation uh, that we're having around Me Too, that the fact that it's happening now at such a uh, sort of loud level, in a way, seems to be in some ways a good thing. Would you say? I would. I think there's a simultaneous truth. On the one hand, as you said, this is one of the most important social justice movements most people have never heard of. That's been going on since the 70s. And men owe a debt of gratitude to the women's movement for having launched uh, a consciousness raising and a uh, transformation of ideas about uh, what an egalitarian world would look like in a world in which women are empowered and men are ceding some of the privilege and power that we only uh, inherited because we arrived on the planet in male identified bodies. So on the one hand, it's like, how come nobody knows that this work has been going on for 40 years? Um, and there's a variety of reasons that we could you know, get into about that. Um, it's not the biggest movement that's out there, but it's been steadily growing and more and more men are invested in the ideas of uh, dismantling patriarchy. The, the other side, the positive side of this is that when people are saying in this Me Too moment, which became a Me Too movement, it's clearly rooted now, when they were saying, where are the men and what's going on with men, we have this uh, whole decades of work. I mean, you held up the, the magazine, the last issue of the magazine is filled with resources of organizations, initiatives, campaigns, and books, films, videos that anybody starting uh, an inquiry into what it means to transform masculinity, we don't have to say, oh, it's 2018 and we have to start from the beginning. We actually have four decades of work that we can draw on and a, and a host of uh, important practitioners and theorists and writers and activists who we can draw on. So there's a lot that we can feel good about. 
No, I absolutely love that. You have a terrific library and, um, you know, global, really, North American, but also global set of resources that people all around the world can look at for uh, different ways of uh, really sort of, as you said, dismantling patriarchy and, and understanding even what is all what it is all about. Because I feel like a lot of men come from the position, as I often hear when it comes to racial issues, like, why do I care? What's in it for me? I'm not having a problem or whatever, you know, and then more and more now we're having more of a conversation about, wait, this has been happening to my wife. This has been happening to my daughter. This has been happening to my sister. And it's coming home in a certain way. And then it's like, hmm, wait, have I been the bystander at times when I could have been more engaged? And why am I not engaged? And, you know, um, that there's a whole system that's set up that it's not this individual person's fault necessarily, but it's this system that's been set up that kind of acculturates people to behaving in a certain way that now people are really waking up to and you have the resources to help them uh, recognize that. So why is being a pro-feminist man not only good for women, but good for men? That's a great question. Um, and a lot of men uh, approach a question like that initially with skepticism and concern and kind of uh, the idea of the, the one with the privilege and the entitlement giving it up, uh, the initial feeling is to pull back and to draw in one's defenses and not recognize that uh, if women are more empowered, if women are feeling uh, strong and centered and feeling a sense of uh, that there's an egalitarian approach to how they're navigating life, then they're happier, they're more fulfilled, and all the people in their, in their lives are going to be beneficiaries of that happiness and fulfillment. And that includes men, uh, regardless of what their orientation is. I mean, women and men uh, are, are working together are not necessarily always in relationship and you know, uh, living together, but working together. I think that some of what's happened for, uh, for men in seeing empowered women in positions of authority that it's a mind-changing experience to say, huh, I was expecting, I was assuming that life was going to just flow right along and I was going to step into this power and leadership. And now I have to adjust to the fact that uh, women are capable, women are smart, women are in, engaged, and there isn't any particular uh, limitation on what women are um, you know, investing themselves in. So the first thing that men have to do is ask themselves, is the privilege and entitlement that I have something that I'm entitled to, or is it something that I've unfairly been advantaged just by the virtue of uh, how I arrived you know, here on the planet? Um, and I think that some men are more willing to investigate what that would look like and some men are more reticent and holding back. And I don't wanna get ahead of your questions, but we know that there's a whole, uh, I guess the word that's coming up is that there's a whole army of, of angry men, of confused men, of uh, men who are really hanging on tight to the way it was, the kind of Archie Bunker mentality, if I can use that old all in the family reference so there's a, a lot of things that we can feel hopeful about, even as we see right now in our present moment that 
that the last gasp of patriarchy is having a pretty long run. And it's pretty um, disturbing to those of us who are advancing another way for us to be as a society. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the last gasp, we hope. Um, and, you know, I, I think perhaps it, it very well may be because uh, as the younger generation is uh, coming forward with a, a different uh, mindset, perspective, and experience, direct experience, I think that there uh, is a definitely a difference in behavior. Let me just walk it back for a second. I want to ask you about three definitions that I think are critical uh, to understand. One is, what is patriarchy from your perspective? What is toxic masculinity or masculinity as it's defined? Doesn't have to be defined as toxic masculinity. And then what is being a pro-feminist man? And they all intersect. So you can describe this as whatever it is that you want, how one influences the other. And sort of like from this, um, you know, mindfulness perspective that I look at, we're always interrogating our present moment to moment experience. And we're always sort of looking at, well, what's really here and now versus what am I assuming? So, you know, from, from my conditioning. And I think that maybe that kind of has a little bit of a play. So what's, what's patriarchy, you know, masculinity or toxic masculinity and um, pro-feminist map? Okay, all right, we can take them one at a time. So, I mean, patriarchy is, a, is the system of uh, that it's male identified, it's male controlled and it's um, male involved that everything comes through the perspective and the lens of being a man <clears throat> and power over uh, entitlement, all of the, the, the terms. Um, I, if, if, we, I, if I had the book in front of me, which I don't, uh, and you do, there's a uh, definition that uh, uh, the late great sociologist, Alan Johnson, uh, who's written one of the best books for anybody watching this or th thinking about these issues, it's called The Gender Knot, uh, Unraveling Our Patriarchal Legacy. And he teases it out in accessible writing and clearly takes us through how this whole system has been oppressive to men. Men don't even understand how the rigidity and the expectation of how we're supposed to be performing manhood. So. Let's, let's leave that as a general beginning to that definition and move on to masculinity. Personally, I think putting terms like toxic before masculinity or putting healthy before masculinity, I think does a disservice to men that we are a range of, uh, of behaviors. We are full complex human beings. And we understand that in this time, that that phrase, which had been toxic, toxic masculinity, which had been being bantied about for many years before it surfaced in the mainstream in the last couple of years and has been used to define uh, the behavior of the men who've been harassing and assaulting women in the Me Too moment movement. Um, but I think that putting those adjectives before before the word masculinity does men a disservice. So I think that if we look at uh, the performance of manhood as being something that's uh, complex and in transition, and that a lot of men are feeling that need to feel their, their personal strength, their physical strength, uh, their 
place in society with leadership, um, all of those things which in and of themselves, strength, physical strength, leadership, those are gender neutral. Um, we want to see and, and appreciate strong, empowered uh, leader, leaders among, uh, among women. So it's dangerous for us to, I think, narrowly define masculinity. Um, and I think it's much more important, and this is a phrase that the mainstream media has not picked up on that's been more current, is that we're experiencing questions about masculinities, that the range of expression, so the making that masculinity plural uh, suggests the whole range of ways that men can be and includes uh, transgender men. So um, masculinity is a construction. And I think that for those of us who are looking to redefining and reshaping what it means to be a man and how we are raising boys, how are we raising sons, um, that we have to be open to the complexity and not the narrowness. Yeah, I love that. And, and before you jump in with the pro-feminist man, um, I, I think I came up with a definition that Alan Johnson had, which will speak to the pro-feminist men, I think, which is, and you can tell me if this is the right definition, uh, the idea of, healthy ma of a healthy masculinity is oxymoronic because what patriarchy takes from both women and men is the fullness of our humanity, which is the only valid standard against which to measure the health of a human being. I can think of no positive human capability that is best realized by being culturally assigned to one gender or another, nor can I imagine a truly healthy way of life that does not include the work of understanding and embodying what it means to live as a full human being. And if not that as being the exact de definition, certainly the spirit of what we're talking about. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, and he was someone who, who wrote about race and, and privilege and class. So he understood the, the fullness of this experience. And I think for us to be having a conversation at, today between us, but more generally, and not to be aware of the dimensions that class and race play would be limiting our, you know, general understanding and advancing uh, the positive social change that we're encouraging. Yeah, and I love what you said about masculinities, because as uh, trans folks come, you know, more into the public sphere and public awareness uh, and are able to do certain things that perhaps were limited before for simple reasons of, um, you know, somewhat social acceptance or not, or cultural acceptance, but also for even what medical advances are now available that weren't available before. Uh, I think that I know some of my friends who are uh, trans have really sort of taken on a new, more public role about advocating for, as you say, a form of masculinity that we weren't having a conversation about 20 years ago or 10 years ago even perhaps uh, that we can even have today. So that just like most things, the notion of, of masculinity as a construct or as anything, it's, it's, it's evolving, it's changing, it's fluid. Yeah, I mean, if we think about, um, and this will kind of bring us to the pro-feminist piece too. If we think about uh, a couple of generations ago, the, the, the embodiment of the, the pro-feminist man, of the gentle man, uh, in terms of someone who was well-known in the culture, 
was Alan Alda, who was at the height of his fame, you know, as starring in MASH and being in a lot of uh, films and being outspoken, writing for the early issues of Ms. Um, and he was seen as sometimes, you know, not a fully strong macho guy when in what was happening was that he was saying back in the 70s at the beginning of this pro-feminist men's movement, he was saying the things that we're talking about, about egalitarian, the uh, nature of relationships and women's empowerment. And the, the message sometimes gets delivered, but the audience uh, takes a generation to catch up. So, you know, the resistance to feminism, the resistance to getting over the line and passing the Equal Rights Amendment, all of those things that were happening um, a couple generations ago were now fully primed for this big cultural leap, even as uh, feminism and pro-feminism by extension are under assault. And we have, you know, so many examples within the current leadership, and I'm putting air quotes around the word leadership that's coming out of Washington of exactly the, the opposite of what we're wanting to advance. So stubborn, you know, not listening, uh, dictatorially inclined, all of those behaviors are kind of the old uh, macho expression of, of manhood that it's just not working. And younger people are, if we see younger people as the, uh, as the bellwether for what's ahead, the issues that are of concern to them are not these issues of uh, male power. Younger people recognize that, say, in a, in a uh, heterosexual relationship, that both people will be working. It's not like dad goes off with his briefcase or his lunch bucket and mom stays home and stirs the Campbell soup. That th those days are so far over. And similarly, uh, uh, couples, you know, who decide to have, heterosexual couples who decide to have children, or any couples who decide to have children, recognize that uh, the parenting role is not just being limited to mothers, that fathers are fully engaged. And I think fathers represent uh, probably an under-resourced um, legion of of voices for egalitarianism because they are, when they're involved in raising their children and sharing household responsibilities, they are recognizing, they are getting glimpsed into women's realities for millennia. That women coming home after working and having to be expected to also cook the meals and keep the house clean, that while that still is happening in, in a lot of places, it's also not happening and men are stepping up. So that's another whole area where uh, fathers and when, when my kids were small, going to the playground in the middle of the week, you know, you might see a dad or two, but you primarily were being surrounded by women who might be inviting you to be part of the conversation or might be feeling a little bit of like, why isn't that guy working? So that's a, a sign to me that, you know, nobody thinks twice when they walk down the street and they see dads pushing 
strollers in the middle of the week or, you know, playing with kids in the park or taking kids to doctor's appointments. Those are small things, but in the aggregate, they are exemplars of, uh, of the cultural shift that we're promoting. Right. So, I mean, really, to be a pro-feminist man, I think to me, what I've really come to after interviewing Michael Kimmel, who I know is on your board and is a close friend of yours, uh, who's the chair of the uh, Men and Masculinities Department at Stony Brook, the founder of that, and, you know, the author of many books, including Angry White Men, um, and Terry Real, who also is um, someone who talks a lot about patriarchy being a personal and political. He's a couples therapist I've also interviewed, and how it plays out here's what I see or what I've understood and what I've experienced in my own direct experience when it comes to a lot of men. There's cultural conditioning and historical conditioning in terms of dominance. And as Gloria Steinem told me that, you know, we're ranked and not linked, right? That, 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 that would be um, false logic, if you will. So you're not seeing the other person as a full human because you're feeling like power over is how you survive as opposed to empowerment and partnership with. Um, but that, there seems to be oftentimes, in addition to these cultural, uh, you know, systemic oppressive sort of forces, as they oppress men internally as well, really a lot of wounding, a lot of internal personal wounding that hasn't been addressed internally by many men, because the structures of masculinity as it's been, or maybe I should say as patriarchy as currently structured, doesn't really allow men to have access to that definition that I read earlier, which is the full range of human experience, which includes grief or longing or loss or sadness or any of the kinds of things or, or just tenderness and the kind of uh, feelings that are mostly associated with women and with femininity. And that's conditioned over time out of men but unfortunately becomes that which is really a longing that's never really gone, but is turned into something that might be more angry or might be, you know, power over oriented. Can you speak to then how all of this kind of stuff can help men feel better? <laughs> right. So conventional expression of masculinity limits our range of emotions to anger to anger. When people say, you know, what's the emotion that you think of when you think about men expressing emotion? It's anger. There isn't anything else. We don't think about men crying because that's a sign of weakness. We don't even, you know, with the exception of when the team scores the, the touchdown or wins the game, uh, you know, a, a hug or a pat on the back that's limited to the athletic, the court or the field, but otherwise any kind of expression of closeness so there's this hunger that we have because we have the whole range of emotions inside of us, but we've been, giving this, been given this false message that we can't express any of those feelings. And you know, the, the bugaboo word of vulnerability, of men being you know, vulnerable, that's verboten. And happily, again, younger people are loosening that up. However, there are still people say, you know, 50 plus who are in positions of authority and leadership in a range of, of uh, industries and, and government and media and everywhere who are still hanging on pretty tight to the old ways. So right now, the best thing that we can do is um, make it more palatable for men to be emotionally expressive. We know that the statistics are out there that 
of the people that engage in doing uh, psychotherapy that it skews, you know, dramatically towards women. I don't know if it's, you know, three to one or four to one, uh, but that has to change, that men have to have a place. And it's just not in, for, for straight men, it's just not in couples counseling. It's an individual work. The, the thing that the Men's Resource Center for Change was uh, noted for was holding two simultaneous pieces of the masculinity puzzle, supporting men and challenging men's violence. So we always saw those as the, the two wings of, of the dove, that we wanted to encourage the inner exploration, the, the looking in, at our interior lives. And we couldn't just go to the weekend drumming circle and, and the personal cathartic release work alone. There is nothing wrong with that work that helps men to get in touch with what's going on and to be accountable to themselves and ask questions about how they're living their lives. However, if we stop there and we don't recognize that, hey, out in society, there is an enormous amount of uh, sexual assault and domestic violence being perpetrated by men against women, sometimes against children and often against other men. If we stop and don't take on our exterior responsibility to be challenging violence, challenging men's violence, while we're doing this inner work, then you can't fly on the one wing. And I think from the earliest days of the, uh, of the movement, those of us who identify with pro-feminist uh, men's movement, that was something that we picked up on uh, really early. One last thing on this piece, um, you mentioned Gloria Steinem, who famously said, uh, women want a men's movement. We're literally dying for it. And of course, what she meant was that the, the domestic violence murders and uh, the range of sexual assaults that, that women's lives were at risk because of men's violence. So that when our movement started, um, thanks to the, the leadership and the vision of, of women and the women's movement, the first thing that men said, what can we do? And the first thing that women like Gloria said was talk to other men, work with other men. So if you look at the, the organizations profiled in, the, in that 50-page introductory chapter to uh, the voicemail anthology, it skews heavily towards organizations working to challenge men's violence because that was the immediate concern. Issues like men's health, including what we're referencing, men's mental health and men's lack of, you know, thinking about their physical health. Men don't go to the doctor as a rule as much as we don't take as good care of ourselves, all of those things. But the initial roots of this movement was, were, were based in challenging men's violence. So these other pieces around supporting men to be our best selves, to, to do the inner work, to grow and to get stronger, that came later. But now we're at a place where we recognize that we, we have to do both simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important work because the, um, you know, I, I can see it happening at low levels and at large levels, even in my own personal experience and then in the media, 
where, you know, you'll look at the Santa Fe shooter and he'll say, oh, he was spurned by a girl. And then that's, of course, victim blaming. And then you'll look at the incels, um, the involuntary celibate uh, attack in uh, Canada recently about people who say, oh, well, I can't have access to women. And, you know, I'm, oh, poor me. And, you know, um, we're looking at, uh, I know in my own experience, even men who are young that I've met who are still stuck in this mindset of my father used to beat me and I am here to sort of use women to date and I need to excel and be at the top of my company and like, you know, scale everything and be the best and have millions of dollars. And, and then other people who have medical problems and medical issues because of a sustained internalization of for example, when they were bullied in high school and they were fat and now they still hold that. And so that impact of the bullying, they still carry at 60 um, and what it means. And they've lived a life and they've had problems with things like inflammation or arthritis or whatever kind of psychosomatic things that come up when you're holding in and contracting against not having processed this stuff from childhood that can set you up. And then you're trying to soldier through like a good guy. As my friend recently said on a resilience panel that I was hosting at Harvard, he said, we were told to put some dirt on it, you know, and, and that's kind of the philosophy. But back to what you were saying, mass shootings, victim blaming, bystander uh, intervention or lack of intervention, uh, consent versus entitlement, intimacy, emotional expressiveness and equality these are the kinds of words that I want to have like be discussed more and brought into the conversation more. So if you were a man wanting to start to have a men's group today, what would you do? How would you start to do that if you were looking for support about this conversation? Start by reading voicemail magazine. <laughs> uh, but beyond, beyond that, I think those are the kinds of questions. There are, there are some guides out there for, for starting a men's group. There's been some, some good work being done over the years. But I think any group, if, if three or four guys say, you know, we're into this, we want to do this, they'll, they're going to be able to figure out, as long as they're being honest with each other, you know, this isn't just uh, a session to complain about their relationships, but to talk deeply. So there are, pl there are plenty of books. I mean, you know, you mentioned, you know, Terry Reel's work is very important. Um, um, but I, I think right now, the most important thing that we can be doing as a society is to be allowing those kinds of phrases like vulnerability and emotional expressiveness to be part of the conversation about men and masculinities. You know, years and years ago, I, I wrote a, uh, an op-ed in which when I was rereading it, I was using the word nurture in too many sentences and I wanted to find an alternative. So I went to a thesaurus. This was so far long ago that it was an actual print uh, book, not a, going online. And one of the synonyms for nurturing was ladylike. And I was like stunned, you know. And so I, you know, after I got over my uh, feeling upset about that, I realized I had the conclusion to my piece was that I want to work for a day when you go to a thesaurus and you're looking for a synonym to nurture and it's going to say manly. Um, so my, my point being that the words that get skewed, you know, one way or the other, that nurturing and nurture and compassion are skewed female and 
uh, courageous and strong or skewed male, that's the work of a society that wants to embrace an egalitarian approach. That's the work of pro-feminism to see the synthesis of those ideas, that those are coming from the same place. And I think that younger men, while they are getting these mixed messages, I think I'm a glass half full person and I look for and I see examples of young men who are heading down a more egalitarian path. I think that's the direction we're, we're going. The acceptance that younger people have towards difference is much uh, greater than it was in any previous generation. The, the student generation was so not making a big deal about the gay marriage debate just a few years ago. They were more concerned with what are you going to do about student loans, that they're taking you know, relationships uh, among people who love each other. It's like that's a given. So for, for men right now uh, who are feeling confused, I think the best thing that one could do is get together with other men. And the, the cautionary is not to turn this into uh, a criticism session, you know, to rag on, you know, people that you're feeling upset about. The people who are involved in like the, the incel movement who represent uh, a minority of men in the world, however, because of the actions of, of some of their number, uh, the, the shooter in, or uh, the driver in Toronto and the Elliot Roger in, in outside of Santa Barbara in Isla Vista, California a few years ago. They're the uh, exception of acting on their pain and their hurt. We as a society have a responsibility to be looking much, much earlier at hurting, wounded, confused, upset young men. And without going too far down that road, I can, uh, believe that there, all of us who went to uh, school, middle school, high school, even as late as, element, as early as elementary school, all knew the bullied, wounded, the alienated, the loner, the kid that could never get into any kind of a social group. And they represented, not that they're all going to grow up to be sh shooters, but they represent a kind of expression of loneliness that as a society, we're making a big mistake if we're not looking very early at how we're raising our boys, which for me means starting as uh, early as preschool, three and four, that we should be cultivating boys' emotional intelligence. And I think it would not be too uh, much to ask of Congress to fund the CDC to do a study of three to five-year-old boys. How are they being socialized? How is their emotional intelligence being cultivated? And if we see that it's not, that it's arid and that they're being pushed into some old school expression of masculinity, then that's the place that we need to start. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, you know, the, the personal is political and, and, and that which happens in the home then, you know, plays out on a, on a larger stage. I think that's all um, very valid. Uh, and I have a lot of compassion for men, men who are abusers, men who are people who also are victims of this system of uh, oppression that is very, um, 
uh, demanding and unrelenting uh, when it comes to constructed masculinity in terms of what it is that is being asked to be so performative all the time. And women, of course, are oppressed in another way uh, in terms of how we're supposed to look and what our performative nature is supposed to be, especially in terms of uh, sexuality or in terms of, you know, the ways in which we uh, take care of things. I will say one movie that I know um, has been excellent about sort of doing uh, some work around this issue is The Mask You Live In, uh, which, uh, which is Jennifer Siebel Nosum's uh, movie. And um, it does talk about uh, the ways in which folks are conditioned at a young age and how and why, and then um, up to you know, interviewing the pro athletes and coaches about how to begin to change the narrative. So I would recommend that to anybody who's listening if they wanna watch that movie, because it's really um, well done and entertaining as well. Um, but can you talk a little bit about, Rob, um, some of the ways that this is kind of also going sideways. There's a new movement about the men's rights movement and how folks um, are kind of thinking that, you know, it's sort of like an, I would say, an attempt to claim space as, as a man, which I think men, we want men to come into the full range of human experience and embrace their own full humanity and, and all of that but that men's rights as, as they're being defined in some of these circles, I don't want people to confuse in any way that this, what we're talking about is that. Yeah, good point, because there is some concern that uh, when you hear, oh, so-and-so is part of the men's movement and it's really the pro-feminist men's movement, that it's getting confused with men's rights. Men's rights and father's rights are two phrases that are being used by uh, reactionary, right-wing, uh, oriented, uh, angry. The, 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 they're the ones who see pro-feminist men as you know, being completely, oh, why don't you call your magazine Voice Female is an email that I've got, gotten before. So people need to be aware of that phrase that while you would think, oh, women's rights, men's rights, no. We have to be clear with our terminology. Um, um, so on our website, we have a point, you know, if someone's just clicking through and they see voicemail, when they get to the homepage, it says, uh, standing with women and men in chronicling masculinities today. So hopefully that's going to be uh, a provocative enough or a complex enough idea <clears throat> that you're going to, see it standing with women and men. I don't want us to be uh, confused at all with men's rights and father's rights. So these men are the examples of, uh, they, they would fall under the same heading as the, the shooters uh, in the incel movement or the, any of the shooters who are feeling like, oh, you know, my partner left me, my girlfriend left me. I'm angry, I'm upset, so I get to take it out. They're the ones who are in, in most need of being heard. And it's true, like you said, you know, you have some empathy for their woundedness from the places that they're feeling hurt, even as we have to challenge their behavior. Uh, a colleague uh, of ours who uh, was working in um, the uh, men's center a long time ago, 
came up with the phrase compassionate confrontation. Hey. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing that, Penny. It's okay. I hear a little, a little girl or a little guy back there. That's all right. We'll, we'll wrap up shortly. Okay. I'm on, I'm doing something. So you need to close the door. <laughs> Real life folks. This is uh, families in action here. Um, those are examples of a three and a five-year-old boy who are in touch with their emotions, are being raised to express themselves. And they're part of what gives me some hope for where we're heading. So the, the, the guys who are feeling angry, who are feeling confused, who are feeling uh, alienated from a culture where, oh, women are taking over. If they were really to sit down and think about the reality of the thousands and thousands and thousands of years in which women have been uh, oppressed and have been in a subordinate position and put that up against the couple of decades, the few decades in which women have been stepping into their uh, empowerment, they would say, oh, I, yeah, I guess I'm kind of off there. However, I'm, I'm upset because I liked it the way that it was and now I feel concerned and I don't have any, uh, emotional resources to express myself about my concern so it comes out as an anger and we have you know we have the the anti-pro-feminist we have the exemplar in the white house right now of everything that we're railing against so the men's rights movement and the the white angry the angry white man they're they're cut from that same cloth. And the father who has uh, been abusive in his relationship and his wife left and because of his uh, abuse has, has, to, has to have uh, supervised visitation with his children, that's painful. But if you wanna have a, an involved and engaged relationship and you wanna be involved in your, then you have to kind of take some responsibility one of the biggest words within our pro-feminist men's movement uh, is accountability. And when we're using it, we're using it in the context of our accountability to women and women's organizations and how we do this work, because it's work that we're doing in the service of and as a result of being influenced by the leadership and the vision of women and with the women's movement. But in that larger sense, it's men feeling a sense of privilege and entitlement that they didn't feel that they needed to be accountable to anyone. And that's the, the shadow side that the men in the men's rights and father's rights movement, no one has asked them to be until it gets to the point where it's a judge, you know, or it's a, you know, a police officer who's uh, demanding that of them. And at that point, because they don't have any emotional resources where their fear and their anger kick in. So, just circling back to my earlier point, it's essential that we start to raise boys from the earliest days to recognize, as, as you quoted Alan Johnson, the fullness of their humanity. Yeah, and I mean, I think that a lot of this goes back to fear and afraid that people, like it, it's, it's often said in, in, in circles around race and oppression there, uh, is that we fear that they'll do to us what we did to them. Right. And nobody's asking for that. Nobody's really demanding that or wanting that. 
everybody just wants to have their own ability to live life with a certain degree of freedom and openness and existence and enjoyment of life and not fear of someone trying to target you as is often the case when you're in a person of color body or um, you know, a female identif identified body, um, or, uh, you know, if your sexual orientation isn't like cis and hetero and dominant culture or whatever it is, and that there's a lot of um, fear, I think, from these uh, other dominant cultures that is afraid of retribution. And I don't think that that's valid by any means, because I don't think there's anything to support that. But I do feel as though that that's a lot of what's driving the continued pressure outward and as opposed to the internal investigation inward that would lead one toward more of an intimacy with oneself, an intimacy with one's own child parts, if you will, that have been wounded and an internal kind of reconciliation to say, hey, this wasn't what I wanted or maybe, you know, things didn't work out. I was promised the keys to the kingdom, but in actuality, that was kind of a false narrative to begin with. And so, you know, I actually have the resources and capacity now to, you know, go with the flow a little bit. And as long as I'm in touch with myself internally, then I can meet other people in their place of humanity and we can connect there as opposed to connecting here, you know? Yes, exactly. I mean, more men should be listening to exactly what you said and just taking that moment, taking that breath and really letting that sink in that allowing ourselves as men to be listening to and not being afraid of what's happening for women and women's lives. The best thing that, ha that has happened for men is women speaking up and telling the truth of their experience. And for those men who are saying, I'm shocked, I was so surprised, I had no idea, you know, when they really think about it, and it's not necessarily their own behavior, although it might have been, there has been this veil, this, been, this uh, lack of willingness to deeply look at and to use the bystander intervention model to really speak up. You know, the, the definition of courage that we all fall back on is the firefighter rushing into the building, coming out with the, the baby in, you know, in the old days, a uh, male firefighter's arms. But actually a definition of courage is to intervene and to challenge when you're hearing the misogynistic or the racist joke or the homophobic joke or the comment to step up and to be able to challenge what's going on. The, the door, you know, if, if women are heading for this, uh, this, through this portal of empowerment and, and the future is female and getting more and more of their claim on uh, the, the fullness of life, the portal that they're walking through doesn't say anything other than, you know, welcome. Uh, men and boys are welcome too. There's nothing that is preventing us as men from also walking through uh, that doorway into our own liberation. Yeah, and this is just the last point I'll make because it's time to go is I think that some men have been under the impression and perhaps even in their own experience um, with this whole idea that um, 
with internalized oppression, with internalized systems of patriarchy or whatever, that also applies to women. And so sometimes women have become the ones who are, you know, not very nice. <laughs> and a lot of men will point to those uh, women and, and, and say that uh, in the sense that they feel as though, you know, sort of their, 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 um, uh, you know, Terry Real talks about this is uh, offending from the victim position, you know, that, that women have sort of taken it a bit too far because they feel entitled and then, you know, whatever. So holding that as well, because that also is not the system of solution either. We're trying to have everybody be able to come online so that when we need to be more looking at the softer parts of us, we can do that. At the moment, we need to be acting in this more firm, uh, courageous uh, stance. We know how to do that too. And we can do it with dignity and grace and in partnership with one another and not in competition with one another. Right, right. Uh, one of my uh, female colleagues, we back in the day at the Men's Resource Center, we had a retreat and we were visioning things like getting our own building, which we manifested and all the things that we wanted to do. And she said, you know, I, I hope that the day will come when we can change the name of our organization from the Men's Resource Center to the People's Resource Center. And then we will have arrived at where we need to be, but we're on our way. And the, the work that um, is happening across the world, uh, and I advise, invite uh, listeners to uh, check out um, the Men Engage organization, menengage.org, which I'm a part of 700 NGOs in 73 countries, all working on these issues and all working for the days when women and men's empowerment and mutuality will be manifest across the globe. That's beautiful. And I would also encourage people to um, not only go to menengage.org, which I will put on the uh, link to this, but to also check out and get a subscription to Voicemail Magazine, Voicemail, M-A-L-E. And to, if you can, and if you would like, um, check out Voicemail, the book, which is the collection of essays that Rob edited and really gives a perspective on the historical uh, you know, vision and some of the foibles of the pro-feminist men's movement early on. Very raw honesty here, but also some of the lessons to be learned and a lot of the things that are um, aggregated by all of the decades of work that uh, you and folks like you have done over the years. And again, we didn't get into this in a huge way, but you mentioned at the top of the call, and I just want to mention it now too, this obviously is an issue that cuts across race, cuts across, cuts across class, uh, although dominant culture as it's defined in this Western world may have a particular type more than others. Um, I certainly think that this is an invitation for all people, including women actually, to begin to understand how we can enter into a new era of partnership using all of the good work that you've done over the years. So thank you, Rob, for that. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation and I hope we can do it again sometime. Sounds good to me. Well, go get back to those little pro-feminist toddlers that you've got there. <laughs> hey, I will. <laughs> Take good care. All right, I'll see you. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Wise Girl.